The reading from the New Testament this evening is from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And that's found on page 2 and on the screens. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke all with authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you join me as we pray? We pray that you would, um, Father, make Jesus shine. That his glory would shine into our hearts right now. And we would feel the light of warmth and the light of truth. And that you would enlighten us from the inside out. We thank you for your promise to do these things. In Christ's name, amen. Most of us have an area in our lives that we'd like to see change. I could ask the same question, what's your favorite, what area do you want to see change? I probably don't want to tell you mine. Um, Now, those people that study how change happens, Uh, have said it's probably like five or six stages. The first stage is basically uh, having no intention of changing. You're not even really thinking about it. I appreciate that they included that one. Uh, The second one is becoming aware of the problem. The third one is then developing an intention to change. The fourth is actually having action and steps to change. And then the the, uh, fifth one is maintenance, trying to maintain the change. And then the last one is relapse, right? Well, the change goes back. Now, I think any of us that have tried to change go, you know, there's there's some truth here. That rings true as you think about change from the inward view out. But what if, there's more, what if something from the outside is provoking the change. If there was something from the outside that could provide and cooperate and help with the change, something like grace, someone like God. So we've been studying this letter, and we're going to conclude it next week, from the Apostle Paul to a mentee, And much of it has been about change. He wants to establish these churches in Crete and that they would understand a goodness that comes out of grace, but they would change. And most of the change that we've heard thus far has been pretty direct commands and instruction about character change. That's where we've been focused for a few weeks now. And uh, I don't know about you, but when you just hear those... um, explicit commandments, when I do, it's easy 
to get inspired but discouraged because you're like, how am I going to measure up to that? And it might appear that the Apostle Paul is just basically hammering the people in Crete with be this and be this and be this and be that. But if we were reading this letter from the start to the finish, and that's how they would appear in churches, we would have heard in his introduction right away, grace and peace to you. He would have talked about a God who is faithful and a God who pursues us. And now we come to really the great like, as he rips open the blinds, opens the blinds, and light comes flooding in. The light of grace, the light to change. And so I want to look at that together. What does good change look like? Because, you know, you can change and it not really be good. And I don't mean just good, meaning uh, it's a good thing you change into, but it, the motive that's causing you to change won't last. Right? The, the telos, the end of it, is no good. And so let's look at three things. The basis of good change, the process of good change, and the telos, or end of good change. Let's look at those three things together, okay? First of all, the basis of good change. When we, I've mentioned this once before, maybe twice before, um, that when we started this church and we named the church Grace DC, it was intentional. Now, the DC part was intentional because we wanted to say we're a church of a place. This was our theology of place. But also, we're very intentional in the idea of grace. That this church, which is coming up on almost 20 years, and the churches it planted in the Grace DC network would be based on grace. And grace is a vast concept. But if I could just narrow it down to a small summary, I would say grace is the total, permanent, unconditional favor of God. The total, permanent, unconditional favor of God upon us is to live in the sunshine of God's smile under the banner of his love, within the shelter of his wings. To be the object of God's affection, the vessel of his immeasurable power, the recipient of the storehouse of his blessings. This um, week in my Bible reading, I think it was... Um, um, it was in the Psalm, Psalm 103. And uh, some of you may know that Psalm, bless the Lord, O my soul, right? But it really is an Old Testament exposition of how vast God's grace is. Bless the Lord who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, one day will, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you, with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, 
so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Amen? Amen. What a great picture. Grace, and it reminds you too that this idea of grace wasn't just a New Testament thing, it was in the Hebrew Scriptures. It runs all the way through the Bible. But there's one thing that wasn't included in any description I've said of grace. And that is, it doesn't include merit. It doesn't include what I bring to the table. The New Testament says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, not a result of your works. Why? So that no one can boast. No one can boast. You see, grace doesn't meet you halfway. Grace is for people that have lost the way. Grace doesn't get you into the college so you can earn your spiritual degree. Grace is for people that have failed out. This is just another way to say grace is not justice. Justice is deserved. Grace can never be deserved. And we see this especially when it comes to the most important test of life. And that is how we love. How we love our Creator the Lord who sustains our breath and gives us sunshine and a break in the weather. How we love our neighbor. And actually the command is to love my neighbor as intently and as intensely as I love myself. We would say that's idealistic. That's impossible. Unless you had met Jesus. And then you got a glimpse of what heaven will be like. Heaven is a world of love. Now, if you're a list person, maybe I can put it like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Even if you're not a religious person here, I think all of us would say, yeah, that's the stuff we should be spending our time on, striving for. But who of us has even done it for a day? A half a day. A half of a half of a day. The Psalms say, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Oh, I, I would urge any of us not to um, presume that when you stand before the creator and maker of life, that you will argue your case that you are worthy of his acceptance and affection based on how well you've loved. That day will be a terrible day for those that do that. For those that have delighted in his grace it'll be an unbelievably joyful day. Because the psalm says, O oh Lord, if you kept the record of sins, who could stand? But then it says, but with you, 
There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. There is grace. There is grace. I want to tell you that today. There is grace. And we live in such a graceless age. What's behind the division and the polarization, whether it's outside the church or in the church, in the vitriol? What's behind it? Well, it's people that don't think they need grace. When I live that way, it's because I think I'm righteous, I don't need grace, and you're not getting any. A graceless age. A sign that grace has actually entered your life is, I hear you. I see you. I'm open to you. I'm, I'm for you. I'm listening. I'm listening. The fruit of the Spirit. Another aspect of this grace, the basis of grace here, is how wide it reaches. It says the grace of God that brings salvation to all people. And by that it means all manner of people. You see this elsewhere in the New Testament where Paul says, grace for the Jew, grace for the Greek. Grace for male, grace for female. Grace for slave, grace for free. Grace for even the barbarians, even the morally depraved. Why? Because that was Paul, not a barbarian, but a religious barbarian. Paul would say in another letter to Timothy, I was a blasphemer, I was an opponent, but the grace of God overflowed upon me. This is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's who's writing this letter. In the world, favor or grace is calculated and conditional. Right? If you're born with the right connections, the right class, the right skin color, if you know how to play the game, if you've been to the right school, favor comes to those that have been graced by the world. Look at the ministry of Jesus, and it's the exact opposite. <laughs> Grace is for the people that are overlooked, passed over, the lepers, the sinners, the tax collectors, the people that just no one noticed, off the radar, off the grid. And here we're getting to the key emphasis of the passage about grace, and that is this. It's not so much what appeared, but who appeared. Grace isn't so much a thing, it's a person. What we're told here. On Christmas Eve, this passage is often read in traditional liturgies. Titus. Why? Because it's about the, the appearing of the Son of God. And that word appeared is really full of a lot of neat ideas. That word appeared in Greek means the sudden arrival of a God or a hero rescuer. And so Paul will later say in this passage, Paul gives one of the most clear, one of the clearest statements of the deity and divine nature of Jesus Christ where he says, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the God-man, equal to the Father and the Spirit. 
the Son of God, the eternal Son of God who has always been Father, Son, and Spirit who came into flesh, who became you and I. And that word also appear means to shine in a dark place. The people that have been walking in darkness, a great light has finally been shining, right? The Gospel of John would say, he is the true light, the one full of grace and truth. The one full of grace and truth. And for those that embrace the light of his grace, you're then told at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, what is true, good, and right. Grace doesn't just teach us how to walk in the light. It says to you and I, you are light. That is who you have become. You have been transformed into light. Because now the light of the world indwells you. He lives in you when you unite, united yourself to him by faith, by seeing him, by hearing the gospel going, yes, I want grace, I need you. And this gets into how we change because the most fundamental part of how we change is communion with him. That's it. I mean, as you're thinking about this area in your life where you're trying to change, it's the first thing in your mind is, I need to be in intimate communion with him. I just need to sit. I need to hear from him. I need to enjoy his presence. I need to converse with him. Inviting the light of the world to enter into your darkness. One of my good songwriter friends and a mentor in my life and I've, I've quoted this verse before, this lyric he wrote, because it just, it comes to me. I texted him the other day and said, it came to me again as I was. He wrote, I have drifted far away and come to realize that the man of sorrows knows my lonely state. He meets me in the darkness and bathes me in his light and I feel his shoulder underneath the weight. Are you experiencing that? a man with empathy and sympathy. He comes and meets you in your darkness and he bathes you in his light and you feel his shoulder under your problems, your struggles. He's there. His burden is light. But we need to move more briefly to the process of change and then finally the telos. Now the verb paideo is where we get the word pedagogy. And so, in the Greek and Roman world, this idea of train, that's the word we're talking about, train, meant a rigorous program of corrective instruction. The Bible talks about this as sanctification. The old theologians would call it mortification because it involves dying and living. If you are someone that is bummed out and struggling with this area of your life that you want to change, I want to encourage you that change takes time. It's a process change. Now, it's very hard in our age, right? We're, we're, uh, we have 30 seconds or one minute to hear like someone's quick blurb. And, you know, everything's resolved. 
where things happen very quickly and we get things overnight. It takes time, but another thing that we have to understand is saving grace leads to training grace. Saving grace leads to training grace, and if it doesn't result in training grace, it wasn't saving grace. Now, what's the most serious thing you've ever trained for? What was it? Maybe it was um, acting, learning how to act, or some sport, or singing, or whatever. The most serious thing you've ever trained for. This is how the scripture talks about the training we are to do. Paul likens it to an athlete who competes to win. As a warrior who becomes adept in being able to kill their opponent. Jesus, of course, using hyperbole says, it's like cutting off whatever's in your life. This is the idea of training, the grace that trains. Why? Because you realize this salvation is so great. How can it ask me for anything else? Jesus tells these parables over and over saying, the person that finds the pearl and sells the field, right? But the focus and the practice of the training, that's something that helps us to hone in on. The focus of the training is desire. Desire. This is something, as you think about how you want to change, is the main thing you think about, i got to start with my desires. We're told grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That word self-control keeps showing up because remember Paul's writing these people on Crete and there's no self-control. It's a corrupt society. It's a society of desire. That word worldly passions means over-desire. And he talks about in this present age, but let's think about our present age. We live in a culture in a time where desire typically is only ever seen as a good thing. Unless it harms someone, but other than that, self-fulfillment in desire is the law of this culture. Worldly passion over desire. But I would ask you in your experience, has it ever been a time where you desired something too much that it caused you to compromise your character? Maybe it was success. Maybe it was independence. Maybe it was to feel better. Maybe it was to be happy, to not be lonely for approval. Where our desire is raging so much that we find ourselves lawless. It compromises our love for God and others. So I would say, as we focus on this idea of the process of change, really the first thing we need to do is the prayer of David to say, Lord, would you please show me what's in my heart? Would you show me my desires? Would you help me to see, like, what is really driving the engine here? Because we, you know, we can't really see it ourselves. We need God to say, this is what you've been desiring. But then there's the practice of the training. 
What do we do with desire? And this is two things. I would say it's fasting and feasting. Fasting and feasting. Now, imagine you want to get to a healthier weight. The way it's not going to happen is if you just don't eat, right? It's not enough. Those sort of things, the more you deprive yourself, that's part of it. But what do you have to do? You have to actually eat good stuff, not just not eat bad stuff, right? That's, I hear how it works. C.S. Lewis uh, famously said, you know, our problem is not our desires are too strong, they're too weak. We settle for lesser things when God has given us an appetite and a hunger for things so much bigger. This is why we're such a mess as the human race. I just want to say that. Why our desires are just out of control. Why we do, why we're so broken. Why we, we have this hunger and desire for heaven, for God, for transcendent things, for perfect beauty. And we, you know, we're, we're trying, right? We're, we're, we're doing whatever we can to try to fill it up. This is one of the things that sin does. But this idea of Christian change, training means it's not just a putting off of stuff, it's putting on. It can't just be a negative, there's got to be a positive vision. Anne Lamott, who some of you may have read, you know, she's written so many books, but uh, very open and honest about her history with eating, struggling with an eating disorder. And I remember reading one of her books and uh, she describes so vividly the struggle. There I am in my apartment, and I just feel all the voices are coming in. And so what does she do? What's the way out? How does she not get pulled into the darkness? She called a friend and went for a walk. Right? It's not enough to just... There has to be a putting on, a positive, something you taste that's good, right? I've always said that, you know, we, we have to, the way the church understands righteousness is that righteousness is more beautiful than sin. It just is. Do we see the beauty of it? I remember um, early on in my Christian life, um, I misused alcohol. And it, you know, it flowed from my years before becoming a Christian. And then, and, um, and then I hit this point, and I remember I would say it to my friends that I was like, I feel like the Holy Spirit has taken the place of my bottle. Like, I just feel like, but I don't think it just was like that. What happened was I actually became part of a church. I was in Christian community. I was tasting the goodness of the Lord in lots of ways. Worship and service, all the, the community of faith, of shalom. And my appetite changed. My thirst changed. We have to have something like that. And when we're fasting away from that desire, you know, I, I, we, we, we get hit with what I'll call phantom desires. You know, whether it is lust or something, there's this idea of, if I don't have this thing, it will kill me, God. It'll kill me if I don't. It feels like death. It really does feel like death to say no. 
but it's kind of like, you know, you feel like you're, you're 50 feet in the air and your eyes are closed and God is going, jump, jump, and that wasn't so hard. It wasn't so bad. You know, there's, there's a way that the phantom desires lie to us. But I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't make light of them. He knows how hungry you are. He says, I am bread for the hungry. I am water for the thirsty. Are you hungry and thirsty? Don't be ashamed by that. Don't be ashamed. Christ came to be food for us. Because he knows we can't just fast. We need to feast. And we feast on his love. You know, uh, one little word that I hope caught your attention when we were reading this was uh, a people of his very own. Listen to how one Christian took that nugget of food and used to make it a meal. Believers are Christ's own people, his choice and select portion. Saints are Christ's crown jewels, his box of diamonds, his very, very, very own. He carries his people as lambs in his bosom. He engraves their names on his heart. They are his inheritance to which he is the heir, and he values them more than all the universe beside. That's how we feed ourselves. You know, if, if you begin to eat that sort, one of the ways you cha change your food, right, is you develop, you, you develop better taste. And the result is, as we feast on the cleansing and claiming, the cleansing and claiming word of grace, Paul refers to it. One of Paul's favorite little ways to talk about it is he says, he gave himself. That's where it kind of it got down to for Paul. As you went to the mighty story of God coming to become a sacrificial atonement and a propitiation to take our sin, to be our righteousness, all these wonderful theological things, it got to boil down at some point. You gave yourself for me, for me. He gave himself. And the result is an activist following. Zealots. Zealots of grace. Zealots of people that want to do good and have to do good because of the grace they've tasted. The world doesn't need any more zealots other than that. People are afraid of religious zealots. I don't know many of you that are afraid of zealots that do good, but Jesus did get crucified. So let's not expect a warm welcome. But the end of change, to close. This passage, this word of grace is positioned between two appearings, the first appearing of Christ and the second appearing. Another thing that that appearing word means is the appearing something that's stunning when it appears. It's not just like, hey, something showed up, but stunning. In the first coming, Jesus came, and it really, you know, most of the time, people were like, uh, big deal. 
right? A few of his disciples got a vision of glory when he was transfigured, different things he would do. But for the most part, he comes as a humble servant and he came to become sin. To become your sin, to my sin, the judgment of sin. But the return of Christ will be very different. He will come as a king and a judge and a savior and no one will mistake his glory. In fact, his glory, you know, the, the, the glory, if you read the New Testament of Jesus in his resurrected body, that, that, will, that will pale in compared to what he will be on his second coming. Someone has written, the return of Christ will be an event at the close of this present age in which the present splendor, honor, and authority that belong to the ascended Lord will be visibly, personally, and publicly displayed from heaven. And that's meant to give you and I hope for everybody that's tired here, for everybody who's tired in their desire to change, where you feel like the Apostle Paul and he goes, as soon as I do good, evil's right there with me. Make a little effort, it's right there. You know, I seem to, I seem to be you know, doing well with like not letting my anxiety lead to anger and losing it and then the smallest little thing happens and I'm like, oh, am I that easy of a mark, right? Am I that easily triggered, oh, one thing that will help us is we really have to fatten up our uh, theology of sin. One of the reasons we think change ought to happen soon because we don't really believe how bad the problem is. Once we start to go, no, it's like really bad. If you're really, really sick and really, really in a bad place, to go into the doctor's office and expect that he's just going to say, here's a prescription, well, you're, you're being naive. Everybody that's tired, why will the second coming be so great? John tells us, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Man, that's going to be so great. The ache's not going to stop until then. The struggle's not going to stop until then. But we'll have the upper hand because the Lord that conquered death lives inside all that receive him. But man, that's why it's supposed to be a day of glory. That's why it's going to be a great day. Because man, finally, Everything that Titus was struggling over, everything that you're struggling over, friend, it will be resolved sooner than you can imagine before you can blink an eye. I was uh, thinking about the song by the great Sam Cooke, uh, A Change Is Gonna Come. A lot of you guys know that song, I'm sure. And he wrote it, uh, it's an interesting backstory. You know, he was inspired actually when he heard Bob Dylan's song, Blowing in the Wind. He was like, man, if a, if a white guy can sort of like get a little bit of what's happening in the civil rights movement, I can speak into this. 
And Dylan writes, uh, Dylan's, that melody, which I didn't know, is actually um, inspired by an old spiritual. But Dylan writes from, you know, a third-person view. He's not experiencing that. And with uncertainty. The answer, my friends, blowing in the wind. I don't know. Sam Cooke responds, interestingly enough, personally, I was born by the river in a little old tin. But where he lands is differently. I know that a change is going to come. The gospel tells the story. Why? Of the son of God who gets born by the river in a little old tin. And he walks our footsteps. He lives it. He conquers it. And that's why a change is going to come for every one of us. What I'm saying is, if we're grounding our hope for change in our effort for the world to change or get smart or the right people get in office or the right people, you know, we can get all these other people like fall off the earth and these people stay. If, if we're thinking that, what we ground our faith in changing is him. That's why a change is going to come. Because he appeared and he is going to appear and have his people, his people, who are zealous to do what is good. Let's pray. Lord, we honor you. We say there's no one like you. You were completely faithful to the Father and you were under the worst persecution and suffering. Thank you for walking in our footsteps. Thank you that our future is bound to you. And it's not a matter of if I'll change. It's just a matter of when. Thank you that you do remarkable change in this life. Thank you more so. Right around the corner, great change is happening for us. In Christ's name.